Hello and welcome to Owl Pellets, Tips for Ag Teachers podcast. Our goal at Owl Pellets is to help agriculture teachers like you find research-based solutions to the problems you face every day in the middle and high school classroom and as you advise your FFA chapters. Here you will find practical tips for your agriculture classroom and interesting information to incorporate into your teaching. We invite the best agricultural education faculty and researchers from around the country to come and talk with us and share what they have learned. The Owl Pellets crew is Kate Shoulders from the University of Arkansas, Marshall Baker from North Carolina State University, and me, Brian Myers from the University of Florida. For more information on Owl Pellets, please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And visit our webpage at owlpelletsfrag.wordpress.com. Hey, Owl Pellets, this is Brian, Kate, and Marshall here in beautiful San Antonio, Texas. I remembered Marshall was here this time. Thank you, Marshall. We've met before, right? I think. I think once or yes. twice. Uh, we are here at NAAE National Association, National Association of Agricultural Educators. Woo! I about got the acronym wrong. That was very, very bad. Um, so we are here with some phenomenal ag educators from around the country. We've got teachers, we've got middle school teachers, high school teachers, we've got some teacher educators in the group. We might have some state staff, might even have, who knows, some former administrators in the group. Um, so we are excited today and we're going to be talking about the topic of under, understanding intellectual risk taking. That is a really good, I understand all of those words individually. But Kate Shoulders is going to tell us what the heck that means. Kate, what are we talking about today? Sure. So um, this topic came about when we're trying to figure out what on earth we want to talk to teachers about in a session like this. And um, it occurred to me, so and you guys let me know how this goes for your classes. When you have something, a question you want to pose to your students, and um, you get crickets for, and no one will give an answer. Right, you look and you think, I taught this, right? Somebody has to have sort of an answer. And so anybody have that problem before? Is that just me? No, yes. no yeah. Okay, great. There, I'll tell you guys, there are heads nodding. It's not just me. You can't see them. And so I started asking after that in my classes when I thought, where do you go from here? As opposed to like being the guy on Ferris Bueller where you just give the answer to them and they continue on and learn that they can just get an answer if they wait long enough. So I started asking when they would have no answer, I started saying, okay, so give me an awesome wrong answer. And then like a bunch of hands would go up and they would say, I know this is a really wrong answer. And then when they started putting out these wrong answers, we could then talk about why that answer is wrong. And I would say that is an absolutely stupendous incorrect answer. And then we talk about why it was such a great wrong answer and how it was different from what would be a more correct answer to whatever the topic was that we were talking about. And I was surprised at how um, engaged and willing they were as soon as you put out that it was supposed to be a wrong answer. They had them and they were thinking. It's not that they weren't engaged. It's that they were very afraid of taking the risk of being wrong in front of their peers. And so I got to thinking about this intellectual risk taking. And what do we do? What have I done in the past that has led me to create a culture in my classroom where maybe intellectual risk-taking was too scary for them to want to engage. And 
how do we help them get over that? And what do we do that we were accidentally causing them to not want to take risks? And how do we encourage them to? Because, I mean, you can see on the paper that you have in front of you, and we'll share this infographic with the Facebook group and all of that. Intellectual risk taking is associated with creativity, with um, life skills. It promotes learning and academic achievement. Um, and it's really good for your educational, professional, and personal aspects of skills. But, but we don't do it, and we don't encourage it. So why, and how can we? Well, I think, you know, with all the teachers that are in the room, so often the, the, the darker side of this topic is we are in a culture that rewards the correct answer. And I think that's so challenging. I mean, you know, many of us in this room have a test and our state is like making sure that we can get the right answer. So it's so countercultural in public education to try to wrestle with the wrong answer or to say, be bold and go out there and just give it a shot. And that's risky. And you know, I can think as a classroom teacher, the research tells us it is really important for kids to try that critical thinking of, even if an answer is wrong, working through and finding the right answer. And we know that discourse and wrong answers lead to learning. But as a teacher, it's the ones that were already very efficacious, that were willing to just jump out there and give a wrong answer. And when I said, no, that's completely wrong, they were like, ha, 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 and they kept going. But I have concerns, too, about the students that already aren't talking and then trying to ask them to do this in a classroom um, in a way that is still supported. So how do you build a culture where the kid that is already not very confident and you can't get them to talk much, how can you build a culture where they feel comfortable saying the wrong thing or just giving it a shot and then wrestling to encourage that thinking? I think it's a big challenge. I'm interested how, if anybody in this room has done that or how they do that. We got all the answers right back there. Some of the answers. Some I think it's. Answers. I, I think it's kind of interesting that we're we're actually doing what we're talking about right now because we're like, come on, people, we've never talked to. Share <laughs> Record it even for the nation to hear. Now, a brave risk-taking ag teacher from New Mexico that we love. And the big thing that I especially started as a freshman. Um, the number one rule in my class is respect. No matter what happens in my class, you will respect each other. When someone else is talking, you don't talk. When, especially if somebody's presenting, you will keep your mouth completely shut until they are finished. And I believe that, you know, so they start that as their freshman, first first time in my class. But as they progress and go through the rest of my classes, there'll be other kids that have never had my class before. Animal science, plant science, um, ag econ, ag marketing, something like that. But those freshmen are also in there. And so they sh show those kids that respect also, and it makes them jump out there. A lot of times I'm like, raise your hand, and yet I still have 10 kids answering something when I just wanted one kid. Uh, but I also, it comes down to the fact of, you know, whenever we're learning to be a teacher, if I have those crickets, then I may call on that one kid that I know really well and say, what do you think? Oh, that was close. You know, and pick on another kid. I say pick on, but right. call on another kid and say, what do you think about this? And just give them the opportunity to know that they will be respected in my class get that platform to talk and know that they can't speak in my class. Uh, I think it also has a lot with building that rapport with your students, finding those common grounds and being vulnerable with them. Um, as a young teacher, I know I, I share with my students 
um, you know, personal things, things like that, like family history things that they feel comfortable talking about, other things and being vulnerable when it comes to that assessment piece as well. Um, we have a lot of conversations in the ag classroom about life, um, and so having those skills just to, to build that rapport with them, I think helps them develop that comfortability when it comes to other parts of I have more of a question. Do you find that the group size matters when getting a response from your students? How big a class you've got, does that make a difference? No. I heard no. I just see some yeses. So I think the answer is yeah, it, maybe. Sometimes it depends on the age more than it depends on the group size. Because I think sometimes younger ones are like, ah, I'm scared. I don't want to be made fun of. And older ones are like, I'm in this high class, which doesn't seem to laugh at me, so I don't care. I'll crazy. And I think one thing you hear is we are so objective oriented. It's the it's the history of public ed. And so I think when we build a culture in ag where it's not about getting the right answer, it's about the process of thinking about and getting to an answer, and then evaluating the quality of your answer. So when you know you get what you reward. And so I think my answer would be early on, if students have not been accustomed to this, like, you know, we ask a question and we're looking for the right answer. But I think if you built a culture over time, like maybe at the beginning, you would have to show as an ag teacher vulnerability. Like, why do leaves change colors in the fall? Honestly, like as an ag teacher saying, I don't know, but that's a cool question. My thought would be, I bet it's just because they're dying. And so the color would just go from alive to dying. And somewhere in there is orange. <laughs> and the kid might say, that's a really dumb answer, teacher. <laughs> and for you to say, it is kind of, isn't it? It's kind of dumb. But I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. Let's go dig into that. And if you can mirror that, I think as an early student, they've got to see that wrestling through the answers is, a, is rewarded and appreciated. And I think no matter what the age, I think if you could build the culture of we all throw things out there knowing that our job is to evaluate those and improve those, then I think, you know, after a little bit of time where that's the culture of the classroom, then no matter what the age or size of group, but it might take smaller groups to eventually get that culture, culture book rolling. Right. I, I, I think that building the culture is the key, obviously, but I think sometimes teachers talk about building a culture, building a culture but they don't tell the students that they're building a culture. I think you have to let it be known. Hey, this is what we're trying to do in here, and remind them of that, and as you change it, yeah, that's more what I would like to have. Yeah. Um, I, my favorite football coach has philosophy, and it is ability to take all the risk you want with no fear of negative consequences. And I, I want to have to have that. Yeah, I want Val to jump in. So there's a teacher that Val works with often, and, they, and this teacher has a really unique way. I thought the same yeah. thing, so, but Val needs to tell about Val, this teacher. Talk about the teacher that teaches skepticism. Okay, hi, my name's Val, I work for Bayer. Um, I work with this really interesting teacher in St. Louis, his name's Chuck Collis, and uh, the way that he cultivates kind of skepticism and this culture of, you know, asking really good questions is uh, he lies to his students. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, did you just say you lie to your students? And uh, yeah, so on day one of class, he lies to his students. So he'll put a claim out there that's a lie, and the students have to go and investigate whether that claim is uh, is true or not, um, depending on where the evidence takes them. 
and basically all semester he's lying to them and then eventually they're like wait a minute we don't believe you and so they start you know they start coming to their own conclusions and things like that and i think as not only students but consumers who are going to go out and make big decisions like what food they want to purchase or if they'll vaccinate their children things like that it's really important that yes not only do they have the culture but they also feel empowered to uh, go in and search for the answers to, to their questions. Well, I hope I don't st uh, steer a little direction no. at all. So but, do. Uh, so we're talking a lot about in the classroom and when you're really preparing the conversation and the, the group and, and you are in your own mind stepping back and getting ready for opening up the conversation. What about in situations where you're just brainstorming, giving ideas, or you're just in a conversation and you react too fast, and yeah. your reaction just cuts the other person off and cuts the, the idea down, and how do you stop yourself from reacting, overreacting, and cutting people down that way? So I, I fix that by getting friends like Peyton Marshall, <laughs> who aren't afraid to bounce it Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but to go like, I get it, because you're like, I always tell people, I'm a terrible poker player because you can see what's going on in my brain because it's like a big screen across this big forehead that I have. And you know exactly that. Like, that is the dumbest thing Kate Shores has ever said in her life. No, it's not. <laughs> You're right. Way dumber. That's right. <laughs> but I think it's something you got to work on because you know that what we say to our students and those little comments and the things that you don't think matter, those students pick up on. And I think you have to prepare yourself to, to, to do those things. But the balance, I think it goes back to what you were saying, is, is letting them know about the culture and being vulnerable to say, sometimes I don't do a very good job of this because I'll say something too quickly before you know, I, I thought this thing through. And I think that's part of what you have to do to say, maybe, maybe there's a better answer, yeah. but I, I hear you. How, how do you think personality traits play into this? Because I think that uh, as an educator, you really get to know your students, and then you know those students who are going to have that knee-jerk reaction. And so being able to, and that's kind of why I asked the question about the group size, because if, I, I can imagine putting your students in groups that have diverse personalities. That way you don't have all of the kind of, you know, alpha personalities um, running the class, but you have that person who is going to kind of be more empathetic and, and or the person who's going to be more disagreeable. So how does that play in? I think sometimes you've got to know your student to know that kid that's going to be like, oh my gosh, that was so stupid, why'd you say that? And you know you're giving them the eye that's like do not cut them off before <laughs> before they get the chance. To yeah. say, that's so stupid. And so if you know your students, I think that sometimes you can be like oh, stop it, stop it, stop it before they start. Then maybe you go okay, well we've got a different opinion over here, and then they you're like mm, you give them once again, you give them a look like don't say they're stupid, don't say they're stupid, and they're like okay, I won't. But if you know if you know your students, then you can kind of prevent them from doing those things. Even if your face has already said, "Oh no, please don't let that kid say something dumb again." But if you're like, "Okay, that's a great idea," but let's focus in on what we're talking about. You know, one of those things. Learning your students. I'm learning this new thing. Most of my difficult ones are my boys. Teenage boys are brain damage, so that's work. <laughs> but one of the things we have that when I have that difficult student, I play with boys rather than look them in the eye to try to get them engaged. Get this way and engage them. This yeah. is who I'm engaged with. 
I guess it's kind of like being at the baboon cage. You don't look them right in the eye because they won't come in with the sling poo again. But boys' brains, <laughs> something about the boys' brain handles this. It yeah. doesn't handle this By as much. This, so, for those of you who are listening, he's just kind of piling up next to the person that he's chatting with as opposed to being like face to face. But I also think that like that what you're describing, I do think, I see males and females demonstrate that same behavior based on just their personalities. And I think it's some people do hold like a little defensive mechanism of I am maintaining my status in this system. And to come out and, and to be brave enough to say something goofy would jeopardize my status. And that's where I see a lot of the arms crossed and kind of, I'm not doing this because that might jeopardize my status. I think if the culture is, you actually gain status and you're actually super smart, if you're asking crazy out there questions, because that's really smart and science and critical thinking, I think if we could make status become asking the wrong questions, then I think we start to get to that point. And I don't know, if any of you have watched Littlefoot, anybody watch Littlefoot? So my research area is experiential learning, and that is not field trips, that is Cognitive. It's this cognitive psychology of how people come to know what they know. And on Littlefoot, you know, they have their own little culture, and they have this cloak that the king wears. And every rock on the cloak is an abstraction or a theory that they live by. And you do not question the rocks on the cloak. But then when Littlefoot falls below the clouds, he starts to realize that some of those rocks actually aren't real. And he sees things in reality that are challenging the rock that was on his cloak. So one thing with small groups... I think it is critically important, like we know that students learn, they're in, a, they're in a state of homeostasis, like everything I believe to be true is being confirmed by the outside world, and at that point they're just in homeostasis, and that's what our bodies want to do. But if I believe something to be true, if I have a rock on my cloak, and then I realize and I see something that is questioning that truth I found to be true already, that creates discourse. And we know from research that that discourse is where kids really can learn. But the challenge then is you can't, every kid in your class has their own cloak of abstractions that they believe to be true. So I think one really important step is as simple as asking every kid in your class, if you're about to start talking about genetically modified foods, have every kid before you start talking write down what the rocks on their cloak are about GMOs. What do you believe to be true? What are your abstract theories or beliefs on GMOs? And then it puts that at the forefront, and then they can start to explore if those thoughts or abstractions need to be challenged. And when you're intellectually risk risky, then you're putting your rocks out there to evaluate. And so I think it's important to make sure every student is identifying their beliefs, so then as a teacher, you can start to <coughs> encourage that process. See, but I found it hard to start there. You know, they all, like, we talk about it being a safe place, and we talk about, you know, wanting to change their, you know, correct any misconceptions, but they have a hard time starting it. And so I came up with a, an example that I think works really well to give them a concrete example of that so that they can go through. So I have a child, three-year-old, and when she was one and a half or two, she was learning animals, right? And so I tell my students this at the beginning of setting up that culture. So the brain categorizes things, right? It's how we learn, we assimilate and accommodate the things into different categories. Well, she sees a dog walk by, we have a dog, right? Dog walks by, she says, dog, I say, yes. And then she sees another dog, we're out somewhere, and she says, dog, we say, yes. She sees another one, it's a dog. 
And then she sees one that's a, you know, passes, she says dog, and I say, no, that's a cat. And so for her, thus far, if she never said cat, and, you know, if she never, if she never incorrectly put out there that this one was a dog, we would never be able to tell the difference between dog and cat. If she only ever said dog and only ever got correct answers, she would forever think that anything with four legs and a tail was a dog. But it's the wrong answer that allows her to learn more and to further distinguish, okay, that not everything with four legs and a tail is a dog. So giving them a concrete example of how this actually works in a very simple way where they can say, okay, so if I put out a wrong answer, I can start changing some of those rocks on my cloak. But it's hard for them to get a feel for what it is unless you give them that concrete thought. I love this because we haven't gotten to fight yet. So I'm going to fight. We always fight in critical conversations. That's what's fun about them. <laughs> so I would disagree a bit because I think that's a dog, that's a dog, that's a dog. I think if you lead with, will you eat a GMO, yes or no, and why, is a lot like the dog. So I do think there are concrete decisions or beliefs they hold to be true that you can start with. I agree with you completely, but you know, I don't you think it's it. different if you have them, you said have them write down. If I said have them tell me, they're gonna tell me something right. different than what they've done. Mm -hmm. So what I, I hate to admit this because it hurts so bad that this school is like, let's do social emotional learning. That is not my thing. I'm not, I don't want to hug you. I don't want to I'm love right. you. That's <laughs> right. so, like, like I didn't do it. So, but I had to do it, and so we did share circle at the beginning of class. The student has a talking piece, they say their thing. I started it strictly out of mockery because this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever done. We did it every single day. My kids freaking love it, and I have the best classroom culture. There's, they say rude things to each other, and it's okay because they they are sharing their opinions, and they can respect that, and they know each other's personalities. I'm talking about the class of like 30. They all share their thing every day, and we start with things like, what's your favorite food, and that kind of thing, and they can build that. Now, this is where you can't show your face. Like, they say their favorite food is sushi. I hate sushi. My, I've had to learn, I didn't know that it would hurt their feelings, that I didn't like the same food as them. But if you don't like the same food, then you're not gonna agree with their wrong answers and their thoughts. It was really interesting to, I don't, I would hate to admit that it's right, but it, it does build and it's, it, it works for, once you know them on a personal level, they have no problem having the wrong answer on, you know, any other level. So right. it's interesting. I, I think we'll go right oh, Sure. Uh, one of the things that I do uh, day one in my class is I point out that I love seeing you fail. And tell students, <laughs> like, oh, I love it when you fail. I love it when you screw up. Because that's when you learn the most, as you had said. Um, so, like, in my forestry class, I grew up in an area of southwest Minnesota with no trees. I didn't get that from your accent at all. <laughs> Minnesota? <laughs> One more time. Then, I, <laughs> then I moved up north. <laughs> and, ah, uh, man, there's trees everywhere. And um, I'm teaching a class forestry. It's like, I, you guys, I don't know. I, I didn't know that the trees in my backyard were, were spruces. I always thought that they were pines. But if I didn't actually call and point that out, I would have never figured out how much of a failure I was at identifying trees. And so when it comes to doing any kind of work, like there's a there's a girl that um, our first pre-quiz, she got a zero. And he's like, you got a zero? She's like, yeah. I'm like, yes! I love it when you fail, because guess what? The next time you take this, you get a better score. You know exactly what you what you understand and, and what is what is wrong. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things, you know, several years ago, I, I spent a little term as the director of 4-H in Florida. And I learned something from one of our 4-H camp directors I talked about before. He said, 
and her job was to create the opportunity for this for the member to fail and fail spectacularly yeah. and then and help them figure out how to then learn from that and help them be comfortable with that failure now one of the things i want to talk about is we're getting run out of time here but a lot of the ag teachers we have to really work and focus on being intentional we talked about earlier about creating this culture of being a failing is okay because some people, your students, they may never admit it, and they may be those little ones that never connect with you, but they think you know everything. And they go back, and especially if you have taught more than a few years, and you go back, you know, you've talked about this lesson forever, and you know these things, and like, oh my gosh, you know, Mr. So-and-so knows everything. My high school ag teacher was my dad's high school ag teacher. So he'd been there a day or two. And so I'm pretty sure that that Chief Ferguson rode the boat with you know in with Noah. That's how long he was there. To do it. He knew everything. But the best thing he taught me when I became an act teacher, because I made the mistake of trying to be him as an act teacher, and boy, talk about failing spectacularly. He helped me understand that he got to where he was after 35 years of teaching, not year one. And so the same thing to figure out when we're talking with our students is help them, yeah, I've got a few years. I've learned a few things, but man, have I screwed up along the way. And help them to understand those things with your students. The same thing as, wow, miss, how do you know all those dog breeds that come through? Well, I had to learn them all. You know, they go through their old plant ID or all that kind of thing. How do you always know what welding rod to use? It can always do the perfect weld or whatever else. Show them that it takes time to learn that kind of thing. And I think we have to be intentional about that. The same way that we want to teach them all the content, we have to spend time teaching them how to learn and how to get back from failure. I think that's the thing that a lot of us don't understand because in our role now as a teacher educator, I'm talking to your students and they're intimidated about becoming an ag teacher because there's no way that I can know as much as he does uh, to do that. And you have to help them understand it takes time to get there. I'm just gonna comment. I get a chance to work with young professionals. Got a lot of professional investment in what they do, their specialists. And we do precision ag. So, when we try to do something, we're trying to solve a problem. The real issues are doing something that's in the in-between two different, entire different professions. Or the medical industry and the agriculture, are, it's always the in-between. And there isn't any right answer. You don't know. So when you ask the question and there's crickets, that's because we're thinking. And then the, the, the ones that start coming up with some crazy notion may be onto something. Right, it might and be right. ask of that, you've never had that happen. I love to hear that you celebrate your students' failure because, um, you know, at Bayer, we have a chance to bring in students and teachers into our research facilities, and I always have our engineers speak to them because they will say very candidly, we fail way more often than we succeed. But through each of those failures, we kind of hone the engineering design process and start over, um, and what we have learned from our previous experiment helps us to then achieve the thing that we find works. So those are skill sets that will be transferable, you know, throughout their whole life. So I've got to jump in. I know they gave the signal for landing the plane, but I'm putting the boosters back. Um, so okay, take all of that information and think about the number of greenhouses that you've walked into and the plants that are being grown in the greenhouse. Like this, what we're talking about, it doesn't come free, right? There's a consequence. Like we've got to think about and weigh the benefits because the hard thing about this is I've been to a lot of greenhouses where they are raising plants for the plant sale. And it is really difficult when a kid says, 
Mr. Baker, I'm going to water these plants twice a day so they grow really fast. And you're like, no, you're not, because I want them to sell. And this is my fundraiser, so back off and put the water down. <laughs> and I think about how many kids I've seen with a show steer. And they have so much money invested in that show steer that when it comes time to clip, we can't allow them to fail because there's so much investment in the project. So I get, I get the dynamic, but I think we've also got to think about when we are planting plants in a greenhouse, is the goal to learn or to fundraise? And I think we've, the answer is both. But when you're raising plants to sell, how can you set up some sections for kids to also fail and to see which plants flower more or less? I think you've got to be willing to accept some loss and profit to know that some of the plants, kids are going to have strategies that won't lead to success. I think sometimes as ag teachers, I sure have the mentality of, quit touching my plant. Hey, quit, quit, quit touching that plant. That plant's been growing. I've been working really hard to make that plant look this way. And I think backing off, it's kind of like a parent, and allowing them and leaving space in our programs for their projects to fail, rather than to get in the way and fix it for them so they can win. I think that that's a tough balance sometimes. Well, I think that's great. And most great things happen by accident, and that, that's a great example how I backed into this was, whenever you teach your students how to make transplant seedlings, do they follow those steps perfectly every single time? Because I didn't do that, they were teaching. And so what I ended up, luckily one year I was ahead of the game, and I let them just transplant seedlings. I said, guys, we're moving from this flat into these pots, go. And a week later, we kept track of who did what, you know, I did mine, and they did theirs, and we had who did the better ones, and I saw that actually those dead plants, and like Marshall's saying, by seeing those dead plants, that is a learning experience and then we could transplant for the plant sale, or then we could transplant for something else. Just really, sometimes like, will you set us up for, you know, to make a mistake? Well, sort of, kind of, but I knew you would do it. And I think what Marshall's saying there is making sure you, you plan those opportunities in a safe space. Yeah, we lost a few plants. That's a whole lot better than me saying, well, let's not feed this animal for three months and see what happens. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is the opportunity that, that he's talking about to do that. Time to land the plane. All right. Well, this, is, this has been a great conversation. Thank you guys so much. Only ag teachers would show up to a workshop session like this on a, late on a Friday afternoon to talk about understanding intellectual risk-taking. You guys are awesome. We thank you for being here. I think the big takeaways is we, we have to create this respect in our classroom, build a rapport, build the culture, be intentional about helping our students um, fail and learn from that failure, and really kind of be able to take this risk and to show them that we take risks and can learn from it as well. So thank you all very much for being here with us today. Y'all, uh, this is Brian for KM Marshall. We are here by the Owl Pellet here in beautiful San Antonio, Texas at the NAAE conference. Thank you to all the teachers here in the audience. Thank you everybody who participated. Ag teachers, remember what you do is important. You make a difference. Keep it up every day. Thank you. One of the jobs of an ag teacher is to prepare students for their callings later in life. And for some of our students, that calling can mean college, which we all know comes with a pretty hefty price tag. Which is why I want to share with you the Razorback Ag Academy. The University of Arkansas created the Razorback Ag Academy through the College of Agricultural, Food, and Life Sciences, specifically for high school ag students like yours. Instead of paying thousands for tuition, your students can enroll in online courses like Intro to Animal Science and Foundations of Agricultural Education for $39. The best part? They can enroll right now as high school students. 
If you're interested in learning more about offering the University of Arkansas's Razorback Ag Academy to your students, I'd love to talk to you about it. You don't even have to be local. It's all online. Just contact me, Kate Shoulders. My contact info is listed in the details of this podcast. If you want to help your students prepare for their life after graduation, and the University of Arkansas wants to help you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Owl Pellets. Please visit our webpage for more information on this topic and to learn more about all of our guests. Be sure to follow Owl Pellets on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It would also be great for you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, we ask that you please take a moment and comment on our podcast so others can find it as well. So for Kate and Marshall, this is Brian here by the Owl Pellet saying thanks and we look forward to seeing you again on another episode of Owl Pellets, Tips for Ag Teachers.